What causes someone to go from being a committed Christian to a convinced non-believer? On this week's podcast, I talked to Dr. John Marriott, an expert on so-called deconversion. His book, A Recipe for Disaster, is published by Whipfenstock. In this week's Church Times, we have a feature on this, which draws on Dr. Marriott's work. We've got eight pages of reports from the General Synod, a call for culture change in a middle-class dominated church, and Malcolm Guype marks George Herbert's commemoration in the church calendar. If you want to read all this and much more, and don't subscribe to the paper, try five issues for just £5. During the trial, you'll receive full access to our website, digital edition, and online archive. Or you can try just the digital package for £5 for a month. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. And there are still some tickets left for the final of the Theology Slam on Thursday 8th of March at St John's Hoxton in London. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash theology hyphen slam. If you can't make it there in person, we'll be streaming the event live on our Facebook page from 7pm. Maybe I can just start, really, what prompted you to undertake this research? What, what sparked an interest in this area? When I was in the middle of doing my... Uh, my PhD program, I was looking at something else. I was uh, I, actually studying uh, Buddhism, and I was going to do something on on that. And um, in doing so, I came across uh, some websites uh, from about former Christians, people who had posted their stories about how they had left Christianity. And I started reading more and more and more of them. And I began talking with one of my advisors about it and said how fascinating this was to me. And how much of a problem I started to realize it was. And they said, well, would you be interested in writing on that instead? And I said, I I really think I would. I think it would be something that I would have much more passion about. And so they said, "Um, all right, so let's figure out what kind of a a topic that we can come up with. And I looked into, you know, things like um, the reasons people have lost their faith and the process. And some other people had started doing some research on that. But no one had done any research on the impact of going from a conservative evangelical perspective to a committed atheist perspective. And so that's what I ended up doing my dissertation on. And then from there, I just continued uh, talking with people and, and uh, reading more stories and, and uh, decided that something needed to be written for, for the church to help them think well about how to socialize folks uh, into the faith and avoid some of the problems that I saw that caused people to lose their faith. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned conservative evangelicals, so you're talking about people who have a um, a particular theology, but I mean, who are also very committed Christians. This isn't just sort of churchgoers who stop going to church. This is people who are, um, you know, public and committed Christians who who really believe with certainty, who then go all the way to being equally as committed atheists. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. An example that I use in the book is Jonathan Edwards. Uh, yes. Uh, I, and I'm sure you're familiar with Jonathan, the triple jumper and his story. Very much so. I mean, when I was growing up in a sort of um, Anglican evangelical church, he was in the 90s. He was very well known on um, television, you know, often in books and um, programs we saw, you know, as a great advocate for the Christian faith. Um, so it was, yeah, I mean, I think quite shocking to many people when he, he came out as a, what, an agnostic or atheist. Um, I mean, could you say a bit about him and and is he a good example of of this phenomenon? Oh, um, he's a great example of the phenomenon, and um, I wrote about him because I I have some personal experience with with Jonathan. And um, when I was in college, I was I grew up doing the triple jump in, as well. So in Canada, um, I had some success in doing the triple jump and uh, was nationally ranked at one point. And 
received a scholarship to go to the United States and compete. And that was right around the time when Jonathan had broken the world record in 95. And I had watched him do that on television at home. And I knew his story about, about his faith and some of the events that he missed, like world championships and Olympics, because of his, uh, his, his beliefs. And so I was very much uh, enamored with him. And he was a hero of mine. And we went to, um, I went to a track meet at Florida State University. And, and um, turns out he was there. And uh, he was there training because it was in March and it was right before the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. And I was having a very, really, uh, a really difficult time. My, uh, my jumps were very poor. I was going through a really bad phase, very discouraged. And uh, lo and behold, here is the guy who is my hero, who's not only an amazing athlete and triple jumper, but he's also a committed Christian and someone who, you know, I sort of felt this kinship with from afar. And uh, I waited for him to be done his workout and I went over and I talked with him and told him who I was and tried to convince him we had many things in common and mm-hmm. and uh and asked if he would consider just watching me and maybe giving me some advice and he's he did better than that he invited me out for lunch and we went out for lunch and he told me about how when he retired he wanted to go to Dallas Theological Seminary and um, study uh, the nation of Israel in a systematic way and and uh, we talked about his faith and the reason why he decided to start competing on Sundays. We picked his wife up from a Bible study and we went out for lunch and um, it was uh, just really encouraging to me. And so I followed his career, of course, and I uh, actually went and watched him jump in Edmonton in 2001. I sat right behind his coach and he had this massive jump and he won and got a great picture of him. And then uh, I was just looking up uh, several years later. I said, I wonder what he's doing these days because I knew he had retired. And I came across the website that said that he was now an agnostic atheist. Wow. And uh, I was I was totally dumbfounded. I, I actually felt uh, like a physical twinge uh, in my stomach, um, like someone kind of had sort of punched me. And uh, I was blown away that this guy who was so committed and so outspoken and so faithful now said, you know, there's no reason to believe in the existence of God anymore. And do you know what sort of process he went through? I mean, I heard it was after he retired. Did he have, I mean, simply perhaps more time on his hands to, to rethink his, his faith? Or was it was his faith bound up to some extent with his sporting um, yeah, achievements? Yeah, I, and... I think there's a couple things. One is that he grew up in a very conservative home um, with lots of um, rigid beliefs, uh, especially about things like competing on a, on a Sunday. And he was very committed to that, but he had never really analyzed it or thought much about it for himself. And he is open about that. He says that he felt as though that while he was competing, that his intellectual growth was stu- was stifled because he was focused more on training and competing and living a very simplistic lifestyle. But when he retired, he had more time to think. And that world that he had kind of kept at bay Um, kind of came crashing in and it was when he was working on a documentary I think for the BBC on the life of the Apostle Paul and they interviewed a scholar and uh, one of the scholars said that that the Apostle Paul had an epileptic seizure when he fell off his horse in the road to Damascus I think that was it and Jonathan said that was the first time that he had ever heard anything like that and it caused him to really question and then he began investigating and thinking for himself and he came to the conclusion that um there wasn't any good reason to believe in the existence of God. I mean, that brings us quite nicely onto your book, A Recipe for Disaster, and um, where you talk about, well, you talk about different, um, tr- both the traits in people who, who deconvert, but also that it's like, I mean, could you just explain this metaphor of a, of a recipe, of the different, yeah. I guess, ingredients that there are that contribute to a deconversion? Yeah, sure. Uh, briefly, every recipe has 
three factors. There are ingredients, there's preparation of those ingredients, and then there's the environment that you cook them in. And uh, every uh, sort of deconversion story is like a recipe. It's never simplistic. It's never just one reason. It's usually a combination of ingredients, preparation, and uh, an environment where um, I guess you could say, uh, you know, we're kind of uh, cooked. And the ingredients would be the uh, temperament, personality traits, the values, uh, the underlying uh, beliefs that people who tend to deconvert um, statistically have. So if someone is uh, above average in, in intelligence, has low tolerance for uh, submitting to authority, has low tolerance of more of a right wing kind of political perspective, is someone who uh, really values self-determination and being in control, uh, maybe has a little bit more education than the average person, is open to experience. Uh, all of these kind of combine and set somebody up uh, statistically to be more likely to have a crisis of faith and to eventually leave their faith. So that would be number one, the individuals themselves have uh, almost like a profile and um, the more you boxes you can check off on that statistically more likely uh, someone is to lose their faith. The preparation is the, what I focus on in the book and that is um, the way that individuals are socialized into the faith really makes a huge difference. The more uh, narratives you read, the stories that you read online of people who once were Christians and who no longer are, you start to see themes develop in how they were raised, how they were discipled, what they were told Christianity was, how they were told they needed to live out their Christianity. And that plays a huge role in, um, in their loss of faith. And that's, about the, that's the one thing that we have control over as parents and as church leaders when it comes to uh, faith development and for formation is, is that aspect of it. And then finally, the third is uh, all uh, prepared ingredients get cooked somewhere, whether that's an oven or a microwave or uh, a burner of some sort. And all of us um, who are socialized into the Christian faith um, kind of are getting uh, processed or, or uh, baked in an environment that's increasingly, at least in the West, certainly for you guys in the UK, much more secular and skeptical um, to religious faith than it historically has been. And so when you combine those three things, the ingredients of someone who is maybe a little bit more inclined to be analytical and questioning and skeptical, you prepare them improperly in your in discipleship and socialization, and then you send them out into a world that is um, uh, not friendly to uh, maybe uh, perspectives of faith, that is the recipe for disaster. And you talk about people being either overprepared or underprepared. I mean, could you could you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So I mean, overprepared folks are are often people who come out of very conservative environments, very fundamental environments. I come out of a Plymouth Brethren history, and um, which traces itself back to to England, and uh, would probably be familiar with some of your listeners. And and the the uh, assembly that I came out of was uh, was was pretty balanced. But in hindsight, looking back on it, what I picked up was that being a Christian didn't just mean that you affirmed and, and had a deep commitment and trust to Jesus and some of the essentials of the faith, but that there were a lot of other things that if I was going to be a real Christian, that I needed to affirm and I needed to do and many things that I could not do. So for example, dancing, alcohol, movies, tattoos, um, you know, hairstyles, clothing styles, um, you know, where I could go, where I couldn't go, and all of the uh, other 
sort of doctrinal beliefs that were also very important to hold, um, you know, role of women, um, inerrancy of scripture. I mean, there's a ton of things that kind of got elevated uh, to a really high level. And I, I picked up somewhere along the way the idea that if I was going to be a Christian, I had to affirm all of these things, because if I didn't, then I wasn't being a real Christian. And, and that, that set up for me a, a very fragile and um, inflexible faith that was like a house of cards. And if one of those beliefs that I held were, were, were shown to me to be false, it would collapse the entire structure. And so overprepared individuals are those who are, are those individuals who are socialized into a version of Christianity that elevates a lot of beliefs and practices to the essential level. Whether it's stated that way or not, um, that's a huge problem. So in some circles, that could be a literal six-day creation a few thousand years ago, that if someone goes to a you know, biology class and finds out about evolution and the age of the Earth and the universe, that that, for some, in particularly conservative environments, could precipitate a, a real crisis of faith where they think, well, the whole thing is not true. So therefore, I may as well give up. Yes, absolutely. That would be this. I would say in, in my research, that is the second most common problem cited is that the Bible and science just don't add up. They don't line up together. And if I have to affirm one or the other, then I'm going to go with with the science because I just think that there's more reason to believe that. And there is an assumption that they have been that has been planted in them that it has to be one of the or the other. It has to be literal six day, 24 hour creation or the Bible is simply not true because it's telling you a lie. It's telling you something that is not accurate. And and there is very little um, uh, nuance. There is very little appreciation for different interpretive uh, methodology when it comes to these passages. There is an assumption that what I have been given and what I have been told is just pure Christianity. And I either have to accept it all or I have to reject it because I can't just pick and choose. Right. And then you talk about the doctrine of inerrancy that people think if they get told if there's one error or seemingly a mistake in the Bible, um, the whole thing comes crashing down. And people then, I guess they have this doctrine which says it must be without error and they perhaps read parts of it which don't seem to um, live up to those standards. And they think, OK. Yeah, that's the number one. That would be the number one problem that appears in the literature is when I when people say why do you, don't you believe in the Bible anymore why aren't you Christians say because um, the Bible I came to the conclusion the Bible had errors in it and then the follow-up question is why did that destroy your faith and then you find out the underlying assumption is is because if the Bible has an error in it it can't be the word of God and I'm convinced that it has multiple errors in it and so while I am not denying uh, inerrancy and saying that inerrancy is a, is a, a bad or a false uh, or an unimportant doctrine. What I am saying is that the conclusion that if it, there is an error in the Bible, it can't be the word of God, is one that doesn't necessarily follow. Uh, I don't think that just because someone may find some historical error in the Bible, that that means that we should throw the entire thing out. I think it means that you may need to question your definition of what inerrancy entails, and what inerrancy requires, but it shouldn't lead to the conclusion that the Bible isn't true, but it often does because that's what many people have been told, that if there is one error in the Bible, then it can't be God's word because God would never allow an error in his word. And then I guess what comes in here is how how literally they take certain passages. I mean, Genesis is the classic example that 
we're into whether it was whether something needs to be literally factual to communicate truth and does it seem that people aren't being um, taught the kind of theology which shows that the bible may communicate truth without in all places having to be taken literally yeah once again there is an underlying assumption that for something to be true it needs to be literal and truth always needs to correspond to a fact of reality now i i think that philosophically speaking, when we talk about truth, I do think that we're speaking in a way that, I mean, I hold the view that uh, a true statement is one that that adequately corresponds to an aspect of reality. But there is a modern assumption or a modern understanding of, of what it means for something to be true, and maybe a fundamentalist kind of assumption for what it means for something to be true, that really is, it, that, that, co- that correlates with literalness. And it has to be literal, Otherwise, it's not true. And there is, like you said, um, a lack of, of nuance in understanding that you can communicate many things uh, truthfully, but not in a literal way. Um, it, it, you can communicate them in a literary way. Um, you, can, can, you can communicate them in a hyperbolic kind of a way. I think of some of the prophetic passages. I actually had a student ask me this morning about, um, it says in in um, in the Gospels and, and I think uh, in Revelations where she pointed that the stars at the end of time will fall out of the sky mm. and they will come crashing down to the earth. And she says, like, how is that even physically possible? We understand the universe. It's not that way. And I, you know, I, I had the opportunity to address her, to, to share with her the, the, the entire uh, sort of genre of prophetic hyperbole. And there's lots of that throughout the Old Testament that is never prophecies that aren't fulfilled literally in the way that they were given, but they were fulfilled in a hyperbolic kind of a way. And that's not a problem for, for that genre, but it's a problem for moderns who think that everything needs to be literal. And I just ask about being underprepared. What, what does that involve? Well, I think underprepared is when we don't do a very good job of helping folks who are living in the 21st century and who are talking on cell phones and looking up information on the internet, uh, maybe about something as phenomenal as the mapping of the human genome or the uh, landing a rover on Mars and the eradication of smallpox and other diseases. And, and, and then saying to them, that's the world that you live in. It's a world that's, un- that's a disenchanted world where um, God plays no practical purpose. We don't appeal to spirits or, um, or uh, souls or any of these kinds of immaterial forces. We don't think that there are essences that cause acorns to grow into uh, oak trees. We think that they, that it's just as a mechanical causation from, um, you know, from a genetic pattern. So we, we live in this world that has excised any real need to, ex- to account, uh, to, to appeal to God, to account for, for many of the things that uh, we once did, and um, for whom the worldview of the Bible doesn't really fit all that well. Uh, if you read the Bible quickly, you, you will get the impression that there are many more miracles that happen than perhaps do. But it does seem that in the Old Testament, there are fantastic things taking place, like talking snakes and talking donkeys and giants and witches and a guy whose strength resides in his hair. And none of those things are part of our normal everyday experience now. We live in such a disenchanted technological age that it's hard, I think, for, for many people to hold both of these, uh, to live in both worlds. And so we don't do a great job of maybe communicating the Bible in a way that is any deeper than um, sort of a flannel graph Sunday school story model. I think that we don't 
make connections between the world of the Bible that we talk about on Sunday and then the world that we live in throughout the rest of the week. And, and we need to do a better job of doing that, I think. And another theme that comes up in the book is is the part that suffering plays in people's reason for deconversion. You mentioned um, Bart Ehrman, the um, New Testament scholar, who's, who's well known to many, who was once a, a fundamentalist or evangelical Christian. Um, but he, he said, actually, it wasn't his work in scholarship that... Um, took away his faith it was really what he observed about needless suffering in the world yeah and his story is a is a really interesting one and um he he kind of cashes out that that uh his story in two different places and on the one hand it seems as though the crack in the door for him was problems with the bible and problems specifically with the book of mark and then compounding that which the, the intellectual issue, um, I think what really, like you said, drove him was this uh, issue of, of suffering. And I, I don't want to belittle the problem of suffering. I, I really do think that it counts um, uh, at least on a, on a surface level as evidence against the goodness of God. I, I think that it's very difficult um, to just simply say, well, um, you know, God exists and all this bad stuff happens in the world and, and it doesn't count against God in any way. I think on a gut level, it kind of does uh, count against the existence of God somewhat. But when when I read the stories of, of many people who have lost um, their faith, some of the disappointment that they have with God is also a product of conceptions that they have of God that they um, were given that really weren't um, justified expectations, I would say. Um, lots of people who have problems with God um, and are upset with him because they, God doesn't behave the way that he wants or he doesn't alleviate a problem or he allows some bad things to come into their life. And that's because, uh, and they, there's a, a tremendous amount of disappointment there and um, disillusionment with God. And I, 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 I think what I discern there sometimes, beyond just simply the world is a really terrible place sometimes, and that seems to count against the existence of God, there is also compounding that many expectations of how God should behave. And when he doesn't, this causes problems. And what I want to say is that I think a, a close reading of the text of the Bible should not give anyone um, confidence that their life as a, as a follower of Jesus will be easy. In, in fact, I think Jesus tells us it will be difficult. In the Upper Room Discourse, he tells his disciples, Listen, I'm telling you these things, that the world will hate you because I don't want you to fall away. Uh, he tells them that life will be difficult. He, uh, just look at the experiences of people like the Apostle Paul. I mean, here's a guy who is fully committed to Jesus and, and living this very um, sacrificial life for him. And what does he get in return? He spends three days and three nights in the ocean. Um, he gets bitten by a snake. Mm. Uh, he has all of these tragic things happen to him that if they happen to me, I would say, what's going on here, God? I'm living for you as best as I possibly can. I'm sacrificing for you greater than anyone is. And you're still letting these bad things happen to me. What gives here? I shouldn't be getting this. There is this sort of reciprocity idea, I think, that underlines our relationship sometimes with God. But I don't think that that's really what we should expect if we're really paying close attention to what the Bible says. Mm. I think you, you talk in the book about how the experience of suffering can trigger or make someone then more open to exploring intellectual doubt. So the two, do they sort of interact or one can lead to the other? 
Yes, I think that suffering often is the um, suffering or emotional disappointment with either Christians or with God himself is the uh, almost like the off-ramp to deconversion because I think all of us wrestle with intellectual problems or intellectual tensions, maybe is the better word, in our faith. So how can Jesus be God and man? How can God be three persons in, in one being? Um, how can... Um, God be loving and kind and gracious and all of that, and, and there be a place that he's created called hell. I mean, all of these can be at least, if not just surface-level tensions, maybe some real deep conceptual ten tensions. But as long as things are going well in our life, as long as we feel as though we have a, a connection with God, uh, as long as our church community is meeting our needs, as long as we feel as though um, we are satisfied in our relationship with him and with other people, then all of those tensions we can quite easily ignore and not have to sort of deal with. And maybe that's some sort of psychological uh, trick we're playing on ourselves, but it does seem that uh, we're much more capable of ignoring those things when um, things are going well. But as soon as suffering or tragedy or disillusionment or an unmet expectation enters our life and we trace that back to either God or his people, then all of a sudden it opens up the door for us to say, and you know what? Um, if God really loved me and he was really good, why do you let this bad thing happen? And I'm not even really sure what I think about God. This whole Trinity thing has always sort of been a problem for me or the existence of hell has always been a problem for me or just name whatever intellectual tension that there is between um, how you maybe perhaps perceive something and what the Bible teaches. And then these kind of kind of come cascading forward and they gain a lot more uh, force. Have you done any um, research on, on what it's like for people once they deconvert? Because many will be married to people who are strong Christian believers. Many of their friends will be Christians. A lot of their life may have revolved around church, even their income and employment may have been in the church. Yeah, that was really what I focused on when I did my, my dissertation and my doctoral research. It was on that impact. And it was really fascinating what, what I found. There were a lot of negatives. And uh, there were negatives uh, certainly uh, in family relationships. Some people have had strained family relationships now uh, because of their loss of faith that have never been reconciled. There are um, people that I can think of who I've talked with who, whose families have disowned them because they no longer uh, are Christians. Uh, there are marital problems. There are divorces that I can think of that have come as a result of one person becoming uh, an unbeliever. And so there are some real family uh, relational problems. There are lots of social issues, uh, problems as you raise because you're you know, if you're a committed Christian and your friends are Christians and you're involved in your church and then you step out of that, then you have to find something to replace that. And uh, that's not always easy because there's not a lot of uh, atheist gatherings and uh, there's not a lot of atheist social groups, even though that's uh, increasing today. Um, in the past, that's been very hard. So there's a social component. Uh, there's an existential problem that many of them go through where they feel a sense of uh, emptiness and kind of a meaninglessness now, maybe a, a bit of a despair, uh, rethinking some of their moral positions, although sometimes the moral positions, uh, it seems, is, are those which drove the loss of faith, where they never had, uh, they never lined up, um, their values never really lined up with what a traditional biblical teaching would be. 
So there are lots of those negative factors uh, for sure. I can think of even people who have lost their jobs because of this. And, and this would be more common in the southern parts of the United States where it's mm. maybe a more conservative religious environment. But the one thing that almost everyone that I talked to had in common was that they all felt and uh, that a weight had been lifted off them and that they were now free. Oh. Everyone, well, 26 out of 30 people that I interviewed, uh, uh, just like face-to-face, -face, all used one of the following words, set free, liberated, um, some form of, of, um, of that. So that raises the question then, if they were set free and if they were liberated, what was it that they were liberated and set free from? Because it doesn't seem like the way of Jesus that is abundant life, um, that is a way of peace, and if the sun shall set you free, you will be free indeed. It doesn't seem like that's what they were bound by. It seems as though it was something else that bound them. And it almost always ends up being some version of Christianity that is very fundamental and legalistic that they have interpreted for what real, I guess, for lack of a better word, real Christianity would be. Just finally, if there was a um, um, a member of the clergy or someone who's involved in ministry, particularly pastoral ministry, listening to this, who was aware of someone in their congregation or a friend who's going through profound doubts and is, you know, considering or on the verge of, of giving up the faith. I mean, what, what, have you got any advice as to how to approach that pastorally? Yeah, I think that, um, I think listening is really important. I think the tendency to want to jump in and fix things and provide lots of apologetic answers and to um, uh, to undermine the maybe some of the doubts is probably um, not the right thing to do, not the right thing to start with anyway. Um, in my discussions with people, what what I will try and do if someone is in that situation, I really will just try and listen well, because I want to hear what it is that they're doubting, and I want to hear what it is that they're rejecting, and I want to make sure that it's it's an essential, and that it is not something that they have. It's, it's maybe not like some sort of Christian scheme or some take or spin on Christianity that um, they have uh, bought into or have, have been sold. And, and that's what they're rejecting, because maybe I want to say, well, you should reject that. Maybe I want to say that that's not what I think that the, 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 um, you know, the religion of Jesus is all about. So let's maybe start off from scratch and, and talk about this. I, I would probably assume that lots of what's going on has to do with problems with the Bible. And I would want to maybe try and investigate what some of those objections are and then maybe try and gently point out that some of the problems with the Bible perhaps are based in assumptions and expectations that um, the Bible was never intended to, to meet. Um, I would maybe try and point out that there are maybe some uh, values and assumptions and expectations that this person holds that are a result of living in a 21st century modern world that aren't necessarily the uh, aren't necessarily indicative of just some sort of pure rationality, but are also part of a construct, and that those might be things that are causing them to to doubt the Bible, and maybe they should uh, ask themselves uh, some questions about some of their underlying assumptions and and some of the values that they think are very important. And, and but I would but I would want to do it gently, and I would want to do it kindly. And I would want to remember that uh, nothing that, that I do is ever going to 
um, either keep someone in the faith or bring someone into the faith, but I'm just, but I'm going to try and be a channel of the spirit of God and, and allow him to, to speak through me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.